I hope you all are doing well and had a, have had a, a good week. We're at Ezra chapter 8 this morning. Uh, we finished chapter 7 last week where we looked at the official letter from King Artaxerxes to Ezra in which he made the two decrees to Ezra where he very specifically laid out the abundant wealth and provision and authority that he was giving to them. I mean, if you remember correctly, it was like a, almost like a blank check that King Artaxerxes was giving to, to, this, uh, to this people and to Ezra so that everything that they would need when it comes to the land, every little bit would be provided for. And Ezra, how does he respond? He responds in gratitude, he responds to thanksgiving, not to the king, but to the king of kings, right? Knowing that it is God who by his decree and by his mighty hand, who has shaped the heart of the king, stirred the heart of the king to give favor toward to the Jews, to the Israelites, and he gives him glory for it. Uh, and so that was his response. That was chapter, uh, chapter 7, steadfast love of, love of God, vertical worship toward, uh, toward, toward God, and how in all the things of life, God is working all of it for our, for our good and for, uh, for his glory. Now in verse 28, as, it, as that chapter uh, ended, we see Ezra say this. He said, I took courage for the hand of the Lord, my God, was on me. And I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. The presence of God gave him courage. Gave him courage to do what? to gather the people of God who would go back to the land. To gather a group of people, not for them it wasn't to go back, it was to go for the first time. To go to a, to a land and to a place where they had never been. Ezra needed courage to convince these people to leave all that they've ever known and to go to a land that they've never known. To leave their businesses, their homes, their families, some of them, their friends, and their whole lives in Babylonia and to convince them to go with them. If you read chapter 8 uh, this week or spent some time in it this week, you know that these first 14 verses is another list of names. And as I began studying this week and reading it over and over and over, because I needed plenty of practice, I was questioning myself, should we actually spend a whole Sunday on all of these names? Should we just bypass it and move on to the next text? Because today could possibly be the weirdest passage of a sermon that you have ever heard in your entire life. Yes, we are going to preach, or I'm going to attempt to preach, from Ezra chapter 8, verses 1 through 14. So cut me a little slack, a little grace. That's why I asked some of y'all to be praying for me this week. But there's something that I found, not, nothing that I found, nothing new is under the sun. Something, though, that stood out to me in this, in this passage. It's one of those details. It's one of those things that if you really don't dig in or look closely or really kind of just kind of slow down a little bit, hit the, hit the brakes so that you can kind of rubberneck a little bit in the text, 
you might miss these particular details. In fact, I've been reading through Ezra and Nehemiah since the spring, and, and these lists of genealogies and such, are you can kind of get into a mode where you just breeze right through them. And I hadn't noticed it until this week. And so I totally understand it when you get to these kind of passages that you want to just, you want to scan through it. I, I get it. I understand. I don't fault you uh, one bit. However, these lists are in the Bible for a reason and for very important reasons. Frequently throughout the Old Testament, there are lists. We had one back in chapter 2. There was a huge list of 64 verses, over 125 names. Now we have another one in chapter, chapter 8, not as, not as lengthy, and we, we most notably know about the lists in the New Testament, in Matthew and in Luke, the genealogies of Jesus. So as we read this passage this morning, I want you to take note of two things. First, as I've already said, do not judge me as I struggle to pronounce these names, because however I say them, you will not know if I'm pronouncing them correctly or not unless I stutter. Then you'll be like, ha, he can't say it. And second, I want you to take note and maybe underline or put a small dot next to the names that are familiar to you, names that you might have heard before. All right, pray for me. Here we go. And you'll see why I'm being dramatic about this. Ezra chapter 8, starting in verse 1. Sip of water. These are the heads of their father's house. And in this is the genealogy of those who went up with me, see, switch to the first person here, Ezra, from Babylonia, in the reign of Artaxerxes the king, of the sons of Phinehas, Gershom, of the sons of Ithamar, Daniel, of the sons of David, Hattush, of the sons of Shechaniah, who was of the sons of Perosh and Zechariah, with whom were registered 150 men. Of the sons of Pahath Moab, Elonai, of sons of Zehara, and with him 200 men. Of the sons of Zatu, Shechaniah, and Jehaziel, and with him 300 men. Of the sons of Aden, Ebed, the son of Jonathan, and with him 50 men. Of the sons of Elam, Jesiah, and the sons of Athaliah, and with him 70 men. Of the sons of Shephthaniah, Zebediah, and the sons of Michael, and with him eighty men. Of the sons of Joab, Obadiah, and the sons of Jehiel, and with them two hundred and eighteen men. Of the sons of Benai, Shilomith, and the sons of Josephi, and with them a hundred and sixty men. Of the sons of Bebai, Zechariah, the sons of Bebai, and with them twenty-eight men. Of the sons of Zagad, Johanan, and the sons of Hakton, and with them, with him, 110 men. Of the sons of Adonai Cam, those who came later, their names being Elephet, Jewel, Shemaiah, and with them, 60 men. Of the sons of Bigvi, Uthai, and Zakor, and with them, 70 men. This is the word of the Lord, and may his Holy Spirit move in our hearts to hear 
and to see his holy, inspired, inerrant word for his glory and for our joy. Amen. Not bad. I've been practicing all week. And once again, you'd have no clue if I pronounce it wrong or not, and that is okay. So why are these lists in the Bible? There's so many of them. If you ever, you know, become brave and you're, you want to read the whole Bible through in a year. And the smart thing to do is to start back in Genesis. And you start in Genesis and you get going and you're like, oh, this is good narrative, good narrative. And all of a sudden you hit a list and you're like, uh-oh, okay, I can make it through. And then you say you make it all the way through Genesis. And then you hit Numbers and Leviticus and you start getting more and more lists. And it gets harder and harder. And you wonder, why are these lists in the Bible? Ezra 2, as we already said, 125 names. And now here's a list of... 15 lineage names, and then 19 other heads of these families. Well, the answer is in verse 1. It says, these are the heads of their father's houses. And this is the genealogy of those who went up with me, with Ezra, from Babylonia, in the reign of Artaxerxes the king. Because this is a list of real people who had real families, Real people who were still in exile at that time. And what's important is Ezra is saying, this is the group of people, of God's people, that really historically left Babylonia during the reign of King Artaxerxes. And he says this, I think, to remind us of what he's been telling us throughout the book of God's work. God's sovereign decree and his providential care over his people. And this is an evidence of what? This is an evidence of God's faithfulness to his promises, to his, to his people. It may be just another list of names, but to, but to Ezra, he's taking direct personal account of everyone who is in and everyone who is not. Ezra is taking a very particular care for these people. He needs to know how many are going, who is going. With his yellow legal pad, like a good accountant, checking off the list and writing down number after number of the people who went. So I told you to pay attention to some names, to the ones that popped out to you. And I'm sure you recognized uh, four or five of them. Maybe it was Daniel. You saw Daniel there. But, but this Daniel isn't the same Daniel that we would recognize from the Bible who was taken out of captivity by the Babylonians around 170 years earlier. And this Zechariah was not the same Zechariah, the prophet who prophesied in the previous generation of exiles that returned earlier to the land. And certainly that Jonathan in the passage is not the Jonathan that we recognize from 1st and 2nd Samuel. And there are two more Zacharias as, as, as well. Must have been a very popular name at the time. And there's another name, though, that should stand out. Right there in verse 2. Of the sons of David. Hattush. Not Hattush, but David. That is the David that you were thinking of. 
that is King David. Now, of course, King David wasn't going back into the land with, with Ezra. He's been dead for hundreds of years. But of the line of David is what he is referring to. Ezra is pointing back in the lineage to King David as being this lineage still remains. In this line, Hattush and his crew, his family, are now going back to the land. And I believe this to be quite significant, and I'm going to show you in just a bit. But first, I want to talk about the families. There's 15 family names in this list. Two priestly names, one kingly name, and 12 other families listed by the heads of that family, the lineage back to those families, making them all identifiable, identifiable families. They were the 12 sons, there were the 12 sons of Jacob, the 12 tribes of Israel, 12 minor prophets, 12 disciples, and here, 12 families. Now, I know numbers are significant in the Bible, and they are. They, they certainly are. And there are patterns in the Bible, just patterns in the Scripture. And I wouldn't read too much into this number. Like, I wouldn't take this number and add them all up with all the other ones and say, okay, that means Jesus is coming back in 2021, June 3rd, at 1,700 hours. Right? People, people do that. Oh, it would. Absolutely. Right? People do that. They add up these numbers, like, see, this is Jesus, and they all have been wrong, right? So we don't want to read too much, but I think there's something symbolic here. A symbolic of, of completion, of God restoring his people. And he has not forgotten his people. These 12 families come back. Is there, is there also any significance that Ezra also addressed and listed out the heads of the family. That's something we really don't do anymore. Ben Roberts of the Dwight Roberts senior clan of the Johnny Roberts that hailed from Texas. We don't do that anymore. Well, look how they refer to the heads of the family. And I think this tells us something about their culture. The head of the family was the patriarch of the family. When I say patriarch, I'm not using it in the positive term. We have to kind of delineate that now. The positive term, right? Where the, the, the family was the, the person of influence. The patriarch was the family, uh, the person of influence for the whole entire family. And when it came down to it, the oldest man in the family, the father or the great-grandfather or grandfather, held the final decision for the for the family and had the most influence for the family. And in this case, it was whether they would stay or whether they would go. I, th I think it also speaks loudly to the close ties that these families had and the importance of these close family units, particularly being in exile. The necessity of knowing who your family is and who you are related to. Now, as complicated as these lists get of all these families and genealogies get in the Bible, 
Can you imagine if we began to list out family trees now? With the fragmentation and separation, the breakdown of marriages, what would those lists look like? How do branches even attach? Maybe that is why in, culture, in our society today, and I've read this in, in study of this passage, is that lists like this are severely downplayed, especially by feminists, because they're listing the heads of the family. That's just patriarchal, using it as a negative term, or just plain antiquated. And a total side note here, but do you think the strategy of the church for a while has been to reach out and to concentrate on children and youth as the priority in the growth strategy of the church to reach the bottom of the family before reaching the head of the family. Do we think that that has really been a good thing? I don't want to spend too much time there. You can contemplate that and think about it, but if you reach the child without reaching the father, have you not cut off the legs from under what God has established in the family and the responsibility of that father to lead his family and not to abdicate his role to lead his family. Now, that's just a complete side note. That has really nothing to do with the passenger. But with each of these families, there's a list. And besides Joab, he's listed there, that every one of these 11 now families you can find them in that list in chapter 2 as well. That means previously some of their family had already left. And now is a second wave of these same families joining their other family members. Those who made the journey uh, 80 to 100 years ago, here's a, about a th 5,000 now who are joining them. In fact, one of the families, Adonai Cam, you see in verse 13, says, it says those who came later, but that also can mean the last ones. What suggests is the whole Adonai Cam family went to the land. They all went. They all left Babylonia. And here, these 12 families, the Lord was restoring his people. But there's more. The first return was around 537 B.C. with over 42,000 people. That's the list in chapter 2. With over 7,300 servants that went to Jerusalem. And all their family names are listed. But here there are only 15. A total of 1,496 men and an educated guest of around 5,000 total with men and women. The second exodus out of Babylonia was only one-seventh of the size of the first exile back to the land. So is this all that Ezra could persuade to go with them, with, even with all the riches that the king gave and all the blessings that the king uh, gave, that everyone that, could, that would go? Yes. This is all that he could Convince. And for the various reasons, scriptures don't tell us why, why others stayed in the land. And it doesn't say that we should consider those Jews to be in sin for the decision that they made or, or anything like that. 
but Babylonia was their only life that they have ever known. It's the only home that they have ever known. It's the life that they carved out for them. Going home for them was really just going around the block, not taking a four-month journey to somewhere they've never been. And, and to help me just kind of sympathize a little bit with that, with that group that stayed, it would be like me picking up my whole entire family and moving back to Holland where my mom was born and where her family was from. We'd be lost as a pickle in a pea patch. We wouldn't know what to do. I know, like, can remember only like three Dutch words. However, even with only 5,000 that he had the, cur the courage you know, to, to encourage to go, there's still, again, something encouraging. You remember Zechariah 4.10, Zechariah who prophesied it during this time of the first exile, and he says, do not despise the day of small things. Do not despise the day of small things. God is not in the business of despising things that are small. As often as we do. It may be insignificant to the world, a number of 5,000, but this number was God's people. And brothers and sisters, again, if we compare ourselves to the world's standards or even to our own standards of what we want, it is very easy to believe how insignificant and small we might be. Numbers in the Bible are often symbolic of many things, particularly when it comes to people. Signs of judgment. This 5,000, again, the 42,000 before, the sign of all those who would go. All those who would go. The second number, I think, also more importantly, points to God's preserving hand. To send his people, that even in the worst of times, God has been preserving a remnant and giving a desire to a group of people to go. God is always preserving his people. He's always preserving his remnant, his elect, according to his mercy and his grace for his glory. He's always fulfilling his promises to his people. These names and numbers are reminding us once again of God's glorious faithfulness to his people. And over and over again, as we see these lists and these names that we can barely pronounce in the scriptures, we are to be reminded that God is preserving a people. And he has made and created a people for himself. And so these names tell us less about the people and tell us more about the character of God. It tells us more about his nature. One of the basic things we have to understand about the Bible, once again, is that the Bible primarily is not a book about you. It's not a book about me, but it is a book about God. It's the revelation of God. It's God revealing himself. He's revealing his character. He's revealing his nature. In Ezra 8, we see once again by the list of, this, of these names, God showing us his nature and his character that he is faithful. And he is faithful to his people. Each name and number is declaring that he is keeping his covenant to his people and to preserve them even through captivity, and to call them back to the land. And it clearly matters what families went and how many, but God's faithfulness matters more. 
Can you recall how God has been faithful to you? Can you say quickly how God has been faithful to you? Are any of us deserving? Is any of us of any notoriety that have a lineage, a name, a history, a a genealogy that God should take any consideration of any one of us? You know, when we become more and more familiar with the gospel, isn't the overwhelming feeling we get is, why, oh me, Lord? Why would you choose me? Don't you see this sin? Don't you see that I am a sinner? Don't you see the the rebellion in my heart and how I still struggle with sin and the desire to sin? Don't you see someone that is just broken into the world and to other, everyone, other people just seems so unlovable? And yet by grace, we are saved, we are forgiven, and he knows our name. And contrary to our condition, our condition of sin and rebellion and wickedness, Christ died for us, for you. You know, God has his own list. In Revelation and in the book of Philippians, the list that the Lord has is called the book of life, the book of life of the Lamb. And before the foundation of the world, the Lord wrote down names in this book, and he calls them his own, his elect. And he put us, or he puts you, he put these names in these books, not because anything we have done, because we have done nothing at that point. But he did so according to his grace and his glory and display his glory to the world. God is faithful. God will not only save his people and his elect, but he will also preserve them and keep them. Do you doubt the promises that God, that God has made to us in his word? That he has truly saved you? That he will continue to sanctify you? Do you doubt that he is truly with you? Truly, truly with you? That he has given you or he's given us his Spirit, that he, do you doubt that he, that he really loves you and that he really cares for you and that he will give you all that you need for life and for, for godliness? Do you doubt that he will bring you to the end, that you will persevere to the end, whether it be death that takes you or Christ that takes you, right? Do you doubt that? Do you doubt that he will bring you to the end and that he will glorify you? Do you doubt the promise that he will one day come again? It doesn't take much, I can tell you, to take our eyes off the Lord and to forget his faithfulness. We need the word of God to remind us. We need each other to remind us. We need these long lists of names that we barely can pronounce or pretend to pronounce. 
to remind us that God is faithful. And his faithfulness does not waver because his faithfulness is who he is. It's his character. It's his nature. Meaning it is not in him to not be faithful. He's always faithful. The faithfulness of God in display once again in these lists. Now before the 12 family names, there's three names before them. The first two names that come from the line of the priests descending from Aaron. There's Phineas, who was the son of Eleazar, who was a son of Aaron. And we learned back in chapter 7 that Ezra himself was who was in that line. And then there was another who came from the line of Ithamar, which was the, the fourth son of Abraham, excuse me, Aaron, the fourth son of Aaron. And then there's this guy that we've all heard of, David, and then this name that we've never heard of, Hattush. It's a fun name to say, Hattush, who was a direct descendant of King David. First Chronicles chapter 3 is another list of descendants, but this time it's a list of descendants of King David. And it tells us the generational order of where Hattush falls in line. There's Jehoiakim and Pedadiah and Zerubbabel, Hananiah, Shechaniah, Shemaiah, Hattush. So we've heard of the name Zerubbabel. He, he was frequent throughout chapters 1 through 6. So Hattush is the fourth generation after Zerubbabel. Why didn't, we, why didn't he put son of Zerubbabel, Hattush? Why son of David? Why, why son of David? So the two priestly figures and the Davidic figure, right here from the get-go and the, the 12 families after that, they're telling us some pretty important things. God's faithfulness, as we already talked about. But he's also hinting at a theology and a priority of Ezra. And what are those priorities? The, theologically, the proper biblical worship of God, the necessity of having priests, the God who is faithful and keeps his promises. And then the son of David, not Zerubbabel, because he's pointing his people to what? That God again keeps his promises to the Davidic line. The line that which he said would exist forever. And in God's word, he inspired for the word of God in Ezra to write down the son of David, not Zerubbabel, or not any of the other previous guys that came before, or even Solomon, but the son of David to remind us of God's promise to the Davidic line. To the Davidic line. Now, what does that mean? Well, to us, brothers and sisters, that is God pointing us to the Messiah. And that 
the one who will come will be far greater than any King David could have ever been. Ezra doesn't make a big deal about Hattush, especially as much as we are, or I am. In his kingly messianic line, but it has to be said that this is significant because throughout the Bible, there has been so many prophecies of that God's future for Israel lies in the hope of the house of David. When David's son Solomon built first the temple, the Lord reestablished his promise that he had made to Solomon's father, David, to the to the Davidic throne, that the Davidic kingdom would last forever, 2 Samuel 7.13. But, but since the death of Zedekiah, who was the last reigning king in Judea, 150 years earlier from Ezra, who was a wicked king and did evil in the sight of the Lord, when God had judged Judah, since then there had been no Davidic king at all. There had been no throne for any of them to, to reign on, much less the survival of a kingly line. The closest thing we have seen since then has been Zerubbabel, who led and governed in a way that was like a King David. In a sense, he was a, a type of King David, and then pointing future was a, a type of Christ to come and how he led his people to rebuild the temple. The prophet Ezekiel, who on the eve of judgment in exile spoke of how God will be their God and that my servant David shall be prince among them. I will make a covenant of peace, he says. Ezekiel 37, he, he tells them the, the promise that will, the Lord will restore a remnant. And he says in verse 24, my servant David shall be king over them. David's been dead for generations. Who's he talking about? The king's about to be crushed. Who's he talking about? And they shall all have one shepherd. And they shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. And Zechariah, again, the prophet, preaching to the previous generation 60 years earlier in the rebuilding of temple, said this. He said, on that day, the Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the feeblest among them on that day shall be like David. And on the house of David shall be like God and like the angels of the Lord going before them. And on that day, I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And I will pour out on the house of David, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weeps bitterly over him as one weeps over the firstborn. Zechariah 12. He goes on in 13, the first verse says this, he says, On that day there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from their sin and uncleanliness or uncleanness. 
to Ezra and to all those who read this list and saw the, the lineage, it might not have all clicked for them. They might not have put it all together about these prophecies, but I think, however, Ezra writing down the son of David is reminding himself and reminding those who are going with him that God's promises are still being fulfilled. That God intended to do something for his people that involved in some way the house of David that was going to be far greater than than what they were experiencing now. That should be clear. It's, it's almost like, like here's a story of a group of people that's going back to the land, part two, with a new leader and a new priest, 12 families. But in the background, there's this little, this little sign, son of David, Hattush, right? In the background, there's something much bigger and greater that's taking place. And, and in this very small restoration that's taking place, some, it's, it's all part of something bigger and greater, something grander, as if it's, God, it's part of God's salvation history. It's all part of the grand narrative of, of God's plan to bring about salvation for his people. And we know, we know it the whole time. We get to see it the, the whole time. We see Hattush, the son of David, and we can get a little excited and we can see clearly where they could not. Because out of this guy who who we know nothing really about except for the most important thing about him is being in the line of the son of David, which means where Christ will come. This little, little tiny hint of like, here it is. It's, it's kind of like in the, in the Hobbit when Bilbo Baggins, a nobody Hobbit, reluctantly goes on a mission with some dwarves, excuse me, and a wizard. And the whole story of The Hobbit is about this group helping these dwarves to reclaim and restore their kingdom back in the mountain from the dragon Smaug. It's an epic journey. It's an epic journey. It's an epic story of how they go to the mountain and how they reclaim the mountain. However, in the background of this whole story is is when Bilbo finds this magical ring that he has no clue what it is, but a ring in in this cave. But it's this ring that really plays a very small role and in the in the Hobbit becomes the major theme of the entire story of Middle Earth. In fact, it's what consumes all of of Middle Earth in the Lord of the Rings. So it's kind of like that, where, where we see Hattush. He virtually shows up out of nowhere. He's completely omitted out of, out of, uh, uh, um, out of Matthew's genealogy which establishes Jesus' credentials as the, the, the line of David and the son of David. But in Jesus' line, in Matthew's genealogies, we do see Hattush's great-great-great-grandfather, Zerubbabel. 
Hattush doesn't become a major leader. He doesn't become a king. He doesn't even become governor. But he was there. And that is what, what is important. David's line, which once was king's, which once was strong and proud, had become darkened, hidden, veiled, almost extinguished among the faithful. And yet, what does God show us? A spark of light in the darkness. Suddenly in a place where we would least expect it, David's line emerges from the darkness in a passage that seems more like a footnote than part of the story. But like a small spark catching a small glimpse of something that just catches our eye, comes out the greatest of life. The covenant that God had established with David's house continued. And Hattush is a signpost of God saying to his people, yeah, I'm keeping that promise too. But you have to wait and just wait till you see. Because from this guy, Hattush, unknown clouded line of David, that's almost obliterated because of sin and judgment, out of judgment, God brings salvation. Because eventually, Hattush would give us the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And, as, and just as the Lord promised a kingdom that would be established forever, Hattush, who came out of nowhere, the Messiah would come when, where, and to whom no one would expect. Those two were dark days. But out of darkness shone great light. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. John 1.5 The true light which gives light to everyone is coming into the world. John 1.9 the Savior who would say, I am the light of the world. John 8, 12. Out of darkness has come great light. God's promises can sometimes seem to appear to be almost completely extinguished. Hopeless, gone, too late. There were some serious dark times in Israel. The devastation of Israel, the exile probably being the worst. But from what do we, do we learn? What do we gain? God's mercy and his grace endures forever and his promises will never fail. Remember our first point, that God is faithful. Again, because of it's his character, it's his nature. And seeing this one name like of Hattush, that now you'll never forget and always know how to pronounce, was like a spark in the darkness to God's people that were going back to the land. That the Lord was still fulfilling his promises to send another king. Another king that would deliver his people from the darkness of sin and slavery and death and bring his people into marvelous light, the forgiveness of sin. And he is building for himself 
as the son of David, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, a kingdom that will last forever. This list of crazy names, priestly lines, families, and a shimmer of light and hatush through the line of David shows us that our heavenly father fulfills his promises, that he is good, and that he has provided salvation through his son, through the king of kings. And out of darkness has come a great light. And brothers and sisters, we are the reflection of that great light. We are the fruit of that great light. I want to exhort you this morning that even from this list of names that we could rejoice in God's faithfulness to his people. And I call upon you to trust in the Lord, to rely upon the Lord. His faithfulness is his character. It's who he is. And oh, how the Lord has been faithful to his people throughout all of history. Even in the darkest of times, when the church seemed as beaten and battered and non-existent, or even in its worst places, when Israel was at its worst moments, there's still the great light of God working out his plan according to his will for his glory and for our joy. He sustains us, he sustains his church, and his steadfast love endures forever. Do you have a great sense of God's faithfulness to you? If you do, if you understand that, then know that you are more than just a number, but you are a name on the list of the Lord's. And our response to him is worship and trust. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful that out of great darkness you have brought light. And that light was the life of men. Thank you for sending your son. Even through this, even through this dark time, you were working out your plan. And we see the, the, the spark of, of that, Lord. And, so we, and, and for us in our own lives, we can, we can look to that and trust you when we doubt. Trust you when we, when we fear. Trust you when we, when we hurt. Trust you when we lose. Trust you when we suffer. Trust you when things are going good. Lord, thank you for the provision of salvation that you have promised and that you have fulfilled. And we are the fruit of what your son has accomplished on the cross as your people. Lord, would you continue to sanctify us and continue to grow us according to your will. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.